You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson and Sarah Raven. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a really important group of plants known as the companion plants, which are plants that will support both the ornamental garden and the vegetable garden in being pest-free, full of good insects and resulting in you producing wonderful crops of either flowers or vegetables. And I know at Perch Hill, the veg bank is always a tapestry of both things to eat and things that look beautiful and they both combine to create this Eden place of not needing to use any chemicals or pesticides because the plants are working together so I know this is something that Sarah has always been very passionate about because it not only makes a space work organically it also makes a space look gorgeous. Companion planting is a win-win situation I mean, we discussed the plants for birds, bees and butterflies two or three episodes ago, didn't we? Yeah. But I, I do feel companion planting is it's just a horrible modern phrase, but it's a no-brainer because your garden looks lovely and your garden benefits from looking lovely. Mm. And so for me, it's like the same thing as cut and come again plants, which I'm equally obsessed by, which is... I, I just don't understand why people don't grow the veg that are cut and come again, that you can go out and harvest on a Friday and go back the following Wednesday and they've grown back again. So I, it's the same thing. I just think it's a win-win. So w- which are the things that you're going to use for companion planting this year? Well, it's it's a nice thing because it's where the sort of ornamental garden meets the veg garden. The fact is that a lot of these companion plants are your classic cut flowers, um, yeah. particularly when it comes to the marigolds, both the English marigolds, the calendulas, and the French marigolds, the, the tagetes, yeah. both make the most fantastic flowers for pots or in the flower bed or in the vegetable garden where the, the scent and the leaves help to disguise tomatoes from whitefly, which is the classic mm. reason why you should always have the most gorgeous greenhouse filled with French marigolds and mm. tomatoes. You, you won't get aphids then. And it will look absolutely gorgeous. I, I know whenever I mention vegetables, I go back to the kitchen garden at Chatsworth, which is um, on a slope. And in the middle mm. of the slope are these greenhouses that are beautiful, quite low and white framed, like um, large chicken house shapes they resemble to me. Anyway, the beds are raised in brick and a path goes through the middle. And I remember looking through the door and seeing this whole canopy of gorgeous tomatoes at their prime, you know, the kind of mr mcgregor scene where you just want to go and eat one but you can't because there's there's a rope stopping you from going in anyway (laughs) what was surrounding these gorgeous tomatoes were the equally beautiful flowers of tagetes french marigolds yeah and they were so tall i'm not talking about dinky ones that you'd buy as a six-pack from you know the supermarket that you see these were tall voluptuous jungly and funnily enough last year josie i know grew these along the main avenue of the cutting garden at at Perch Hill and they looked equally as stunning so this year I'm going to grow these French marigolds I think the variety is called Linnaeus yeah um, burning embers yeah yeah burning embers Mm. Um, because they really are the most gorgeous orange Moroccan mahogany Mm. flower and the bees love them they're not totally double they're Mm. airy so you can cut them for the vase Mm. and if you want to grow lots of tomatoes they're the thing to plant with your tomatoes because they stop the white fly from 
I think, being able to smell them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they are, they're one of my favorite plants, actually, Tagetes Linnaeus. And um, just the texture's amazing. They're the, they're, I always think of them as sort of like brick red, you know, that lovely. They're yeah. not orange. They're more sort of mahogany. No, it is a brick. Yeah, they're, they're great. I mean, actually, funnily enough, that variety is a little bit tall to grow with tomatoes, we find, oh. because it, it, it sort of slightly drowns them. So we've mm. started growing them with a variety called Constance with a K, not a C, and it's just a bit smaller and, and also lovely. Not quite as lovely, actually, because it's more fully double, but certainly in the greenhouse here, that's the one we're going for. But it, mm. it, it, it's just such a lovely sight, as you say, with a sort of sun gold, yellowy tomatoes and then Gardener's Delight, you know, reds, and then the, the black ones from Russia, like black crim. And so you've got mm. all the colours up the vines and then all underneath you've got a similar sort of palette and it, it just looks fabulous. And really genuinely from the trials that we've done here, when we didn't do companion planting, we got our cucumbers and tomatoes got completely infested with white flies so much so really? you felt like you were walking through ash. You know, it was just so awful. Mm, quite unpleasant. Yeah. And, and we really didn't know what to do apart from strip them out and get rid of them because we'd just forgotten one year to put mm. them. And then we did a garlic candle, which you used to do a sulfur candle in a greenhouse. But of course, they're a bit toxic and you can actually get the same yeah. from a garlic candle. So you light a garlic candle and it wipes out the bugs and you get back to square one. And from then on, if we put loads of the tajities in the greenhouse and also basil, interestingly, mm. that also seems to have the same effect. And the mix of the two, we haven't had whitefly ever since in there. So that's a, it's a really fantastic thing. I think of companion planting in sort of perhaps four different families, really, which is one of the families is like tajities where you're camouflaging the scent so you don't draw in like the whitefly. And then there's another whole group, smaller group though, which is sort of sacrificial plants. And you were talking about Chatsworth, but I remember seeing the um, veg garden at Chatsworth, which is, by the way, all of you, so worth a visit. It's just amazing, the cut flower beds and the veg beds. But they had let their lettuces just go to seed around the edge. And I said, you know, why, why were they doing that? And they said, oh, they're the sacrificial plants for the slugs. And what they found is oh. if they didn't harvest all the lettuce and they just had this ribbon all the way around their lettuce bed of these ones that, that were just left to, to go to seed, um, actually the, the sort of slightly decomposing ones, the slugs were more <laughs> attracted to. And so they stayed in the outer rim. So that's, that's a sort of brilliant symbiotic relationship between plants again, isn't it? And then you also, you're a massive fan of, of orange and yellow flowers as well, like I am. Yes. And they're the third category, which are, they're the plants that bring the good beneficial insects into the garden, which then eat the bad. So it's sort of lace wings and ladybirds, etc., are attracted by the calendulas and the famously the poached egg plant, you know, that, that yellow um, plant that you can... Yeah, it's the only one of the group that I see and I think, oh, I'm never going to sow that. Okay. Well, it, you can't it, pick it. Yeah. So no, then... but it just doesn't look... I don't think I'd want to see it. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Limnanthus. <laughs> but what specifically does that one do that's that's good? Because I do see it mentioned a lot. Yeah, it really does. Um, in the trials, it's really proven to be very, very good at bringing in ladybirds and lace oh, wings okay. and it's of course right. it's the it's the 
they don't have caterpillars, but it's the grub stage of yeah, those two insects, the yeah. larval stage, which, I mean, this is probably a rural legend, but um, somebody once told me that a lacewing larvae will eat 325 aphids in a day. I don't, wow. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. But it is interesting that they've done this experiment, actually, um, with earwigs, which is another thing that people love to hate. But mm. earwigs, particularly if you're a dahlia grower, you're rather wary of earwigs because they eat the petals off the tips, yeah. particularly of the the, the sort of cactusy ones. And so you get these sort of blunted dahlia flowers. It's so annoying. The first flowers that come out and you go back in the morning and they've just been ruined for photographs that you can't Instagram. <laughs> well, there you are, you see. You're not a fan of the earwig. Well, I no. used to be slightly because they remind me of scorpions and I was once stung by a scorpion in Italy when I was seven because it came out of my trousers God. and it wasn't a pleasant experience. So I've always, I've always um, been a bit wary of the old earwig. But I then read last year that they'd done a study in Kent and they had a big problem with aphids attacking not at the blossom and then the fruit in orchards in a particular part of Kent. So they then did this study and they introduced lots of earwigs into one orchard and not in another orchard. And they then measured the harvest that they got from the two different orchards and compared them. And the one with the earwig being introduced into it had a much bigger harvest than the ones that didn't. And basically, it's because they had munched their way through aphids. And mm. it's indeed true. There's a great book by a man called Dave Goulson, who is the man really on, or one of the people anyway, on wildlife gardening and insects and gardens. And um, I remember going to a talk here that he gave, and it was just so interesting, his research about earwigs. And um, particularly, I think earwigs give a I don't think do they have live birth? Maybe not, but yeah, very, I think they're quite they? they're quite yeah, maternal as insects go. Yeah, I think they exactly. have like little nests, don't they? And they, they have little nests. They and, protect and the larvae. I think he then like <laughs> measured, you know, how many aphids were eaten um, near this particular nest. I don't know how he did it, but anyway, he he certainly convinced me that earwigs are the way to go, and. Even if you want to protect your dahlias, which the classic way is to have a bamboo cane and a pot with some straw in it through your dahlia plot and the earwigs think it's a dahlia, so they go in and nest in the straw and you traditionally would have burnt that. But now what I would do is I would pick out the nest from with, with the earwigs in it from my dahlias and I would go and put it into the greenhouse or in where you get, you know, other Aphid well, attack, like with lupins. Yeah, yeah, because lupins are famous. I mean, I remember being asked when I was little to go and spray lupins with washing up liquid, and it never yeah. seemed to do them any good at all. The lupins, no, if anything, it fried them to death. Yeah, the lup <laughs> the, the lupin aphid, which is one of those, mm. it's specific to lupins, is is an absolute blight. I mean, it yeah. will just strip the flowers and the leaves in in mm. two or three days. So yeah, lots and lots of birds and lots of earwigs is what you need near your lupins. And then, of course, there's a there's a fourth category, which I mean, we might we may want to go over more in each of these categories, but which which are just generally good companions, and they sort of sit next to each other and help each other out. And I know you, Arthur, have been sort of part of our trial here of roses and salvias, so maybe you could chat yes. about that. 
Yeah, so I, I've got um, where I live a big old cattle trough with um, about three or four roses in. And underneath them, I've got a salvia called Genemsis. And it's the most wonderful, airy salvia. It doesn't outcompete the rose because it's very low. So the roses grow up through them and flower above them. But what happens on a on a hot day, you actually walk by it and you can smell almost a, a, a pepper kitchen smell, like someone's just grounded pepper in a morsel. Mm. And um, what's happening is the leaves are quite literally releasing. I think, Sarah, you've explained this far better in a scientific way, but they're releasing a form of sulphur into the air. And because the rose leaves are, are literally above this sort of um, sauna of mm. leaf perfume, it's their way of protecting themselves against black spots because mm. obviously we no longer have coal fires. And famously, in mm. a town situation, you know, 40 years ago, if I'd been growing roses, I'd probably have the best roses compared to a country garden because the air was so polluted with, with coal. Yeah. And we don't have that anymore. So black 40 spot. years ago, Arthur. I think is a little it, bit. Like, that's sort of when I was a child. I think it was a bit longer ago. I don't know. And I'm, I'm from an ex my town. And I know, I know my, both my grandmas used to have coal. So, no, you know, I know, but, but I, I'm, try, I, yeah. I'm afraid I'm too ignorant to know when the Clean Air Act was, but I think it yeah. might, I, I don't know, but it was longer it was ago soon. than 40 years. Well, who knows? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. This is a posh way of having a coal <laughs> fire in the garden through planting things that act like coal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it gives off sulphur, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. And in Sarah's Rose Garden, she's got tons of salvias all lining the path. And the wonderful thing is salvias are fantastic for bumblebees and you'll see in the autumn the bumblebees they've they're quite clever clearly bumblebees because these flowers are obviously designed for hummingbird beaks mm. rather than a big bumblebee and you'll see them biting into the the neck of the flower to steal the yeah. nectar because they yeah. can't often not access the the delicate salvia flower yeah. and salvias will flower like dahlias right until the first hard frost the thing that you mustn't do is cut them back until in my opinion where i am the end of April, almost yeah. middle of May, yeah. because if you cut them back before, you open up the plant to the frost yeah. and it will die. But if you can bear to just leave them looking a little bit tatty and then just cut them back, cut all the damaged leaves off, they will quickly regrow. And it's just the most lovely underplanting for a rose garden. Forget the whole Victorian idea of only roses and you've got some mulch roses and have nothing else under them. It really does transform a, a rose garden or a rose pot if you're a container gardener. Yeah, it, it's completely true. And it is the sulphur. It, it, I think just that when they heat up, just like you say, on a sunny day, the, mm. the smell is very sulphurous and that it basically creates a cloud of organic fungicide, which then keeps both black spot and mildew at bay. We've trialled it here at Perchill. And as long as we go for the stronger, more fungal resistant varieties and we underplant them with these mini microfilla and small, not something like Amistad, it's too big and it'll compete with the rose, but something like uh, we grow here, Jezebel, Nachtlinde, which means nightlight, I think, and Serapatosa, and that's getting on the big side, but that, that works pretty well. Bumblebee, etc. Royal Bumble, actually, I think it's cool. Anyway, all those are, are, are smaller, Greggii or microfilla varieties, and they work unbelievably well in a rose garden. And I'm so glad you brought up about the sort of horticultural side there, Arthur, because I walk around the garden now in April and I'm sort of slightly desperate to get the secretaires out and cut mm. back all our tender so perennials. Tempting. 
Yeah. yeah. And so we've got that amazing velvet slipper plant, Calciolaria, and we've got mm. the salvias and the pelagoniums. And since we stopped cutting them back until late April, early May, they died in the winter. And now, we, even though it's just twigs, it's so weird, it creates a sort of microclimate. And if you don't cut them back, here in Sussex, they overwinter. So even though we had snow here for 10 days earlier in the year, they are all coming back. And it's amazing. And it's now that I'm so desperate to tidy them. But I know I mustn't uh, because yeah. I can see the fresh leaves coming of the calcellaria I looked at this morning and up it's coming. I, we grow one here called Kentishiro, which is literally like crimson velvet slippers. But you just mustn't because still it, it somehow traps enough of the warm air of the day so that you then whatever happens with the frost unless you have day after day after day which is quite unlikely by this stage of the year of a deep proper frost and a minus five so you don't lose them and so we now pretty much overwinter a lot of our companion plants like the pelagoniums and the salvias and uh, and so they make them incredibly low maintenance so it's it's a good thing to do so any others you want to mention? There's just one other. I'll come back to you, Arthur, but there's one other while I remember it that I want to mention, which is it's well known in the first category, camouflaging the scents, which is that you should plant alliums like garlic or chives or spring onions with your carrots. And supposedly that fools the carrot fly into not knowing carrots are there. And so you then don't get carrot root fly attack on your carrots. Unfortunately, we've trialled it here, and that's rubbish. <laughs> it doesn't work, everybody. Don't believe what you read. I've tried it year after year, and I still get those really annoying carrots that are just burrowed into by the grubs. And the only way to grow carrots, in my view, in the summer months is under some kind of protective cloche so they don't, they don't come in. Uh, and people will also tell you if you grow them in a raised bed, that they only fly along at ground level. Well, not in my experience. <laughs> but are there any others that you're going to definitely do that you can think of? Um, I'm doing calendula, which are the English marigolds. I mean, they're they're kind of not really considered, I don't think, a classic companion plant anymore because they are one of the best hardy annuals to plant, cut and come again. If you're just starting out with the cutting garden, they are the most full hardy thing to grow. And the, the varieties just seem to keep coming. We've got Sunset Buff now. We've mm -hmm. got Snow Princess. But I always go back to the classic, gorgeous Indian prints that you introduced to the nation, which has been, you know, succeeded by one called Neon, which I grew mm. last year. The most saturated, you know, like a tin of peaches when you open it, that gorgeous saffron orange. But you've got to be careful with a lot of these new ones because what I'm noticing is there are more petals than the Indian prints originally yes. had. And it's important to remember, you know, bees will help a vegetable garden, particularly if you've got things like runner beans, you know, anything that has a flower in the vegetable garden needs a bee, otherwise yeah. you don't get the the, the crop. So, um, you know, just look at the seed packets and, and just see if you can see that scent of a flower on anything that you're growing, particularly with pollination in mind. So Indian Prince is the one I would say. The other seed that I sow a lot directly, actually, is nasturtiums. Empress of India is my favourite one. Again, mm. a very similar to the Tajites that we've mentioned, that gorgeous mm. terracotta brick red. Yeah. And nasturtiums, I mean, I just put them, I plant them once I've done my summer pots, so I'll just dip them into the first knuckle of my finger all around the edge, 
no more than probably four or five seeds per pot. And they germinate quite happily outside from, you know, the middle of May onwards. Yeah, and yeah. Um, some sometimes they do get hit by the cabbage white butterflies mm. and black fly. But what I tend to do is I do inspect them quite often and I'll just cut that leaf off that they're colonising. And that goes into the garden waste bin. Mm. And that's how I try and, you know, protect them because I am growing them for beauty rather than a sacrificial thing. Yeah, but they are. I mean, in a in a traditional organic garden, you often surround your kale patch or your cabbage patch with lots of nasturtiums. And that means that in theory, you don't then need a brassica cage. Now with kales, it works. In my experience with cabbages, it doesn't. They're just the strong smell of cabbages. Oddly, it's more attractant to the cabbage white butterfly and so then laying its eggs, so then you get the cabbage white caterpillars than kales. So most of the kales are more, you know, it's more possible to do it with the nasturtiums. And another experiment that we had here, which is a really lovely ornamental combination for a veg garden, is to plant the true tobacco, which is called Nicotiana tobaccum, which has got pink flowers. And it looks rather like Nicotiana sylvestris, you know, that whopper one with the lovely night yeah. scent, which has white trumpets, but this has pink trumpets. And if you plant that quite generously spaced, because it gets big, and you know, you want to plant it 45 centimetres uh, spacings all the way around your kale patch. And that really does have a strong smell, of course, of tobacco. And that really worked here as a sort of organic <laughs> plant-based rather than plastic metal-based brassica cage. It, it worked incredibly well. So that's mm. another thing to try. But obviously you need tons of space for that because if the protection it has to be 45 centimetres by 45 centimetres, you know, you've got to have a big garden, haven't you? Mm. I think that... It's probably time for us to wrap up, but I really want to give a recipe and uh, we're going to talk about edible flowers really as the final thing. And nasturtiums are, of course, an edible flower and they taste more than any other. So the only other thing that I think really tastes very strongly are runner bean flowers. And I use those a lot in the kitchen here over salad and over the top of a risotto or something. But nasturtiums are the strongest tasting of all the edible flowers. And they taste really peppery, crossed a little bit with a bit of sort of caper, sort of sharpness. They're absolutely delicious. And the recipe that I use a lot when I've got lots of nasturtiums is I make fish cakes with the nasturtium using the flowers as the alternative to black pepper. So I make a potato mash and then I flake whatever fish I'm going to put in. And because nasturtiums are strong, quite often I will use a smoked haddock or even a smoked mackerel, um, which is cheaper and more readily available. And that goes into the mash with some herbs. But the key flavour in there is actually the nasturtium flower. And then... When you cut into your fish cake, you get this lovely sort of jolt of bright orange, which is keeps even when it's cooked. So that's the good thing. And then I'll do the absolute classic, which you want to do. This is not for health, but for tastiness. <laughs> to make something crunchy is you get three sauces out in front of when you're making your fish cakes or a potato cake, whatever, if you're a vegetarian. So they first of all go into plain flour and you roll them in the plain flour. Then you take them out and you put them into the beaten egg plate and you make sure they're properly coated with beaten egg. 
And then finally, they go into breadcrumbs. And that whole, that three-stage thing means that you get lovely crunchiness. So then into a hot pan of oil or into a hot oven and drizzle with a little bit of oil, nice olive oil over the top and crisp them up and they will be completely delicious. And then as you cut into them, there's your nasturtium flour. And you can always make a lovely salad on the side with nasturtium flowers in there too. So companion planting is definitely a key thing in the garden here. And even in a small garden like Arthur's, it's equally, if not even more important to bring in all the insects from the gardens around. And now is, of course, a really good time to be sowing your tagetes, to be direct sowing your calendulas and your salvias, of course, like salvia viridis blue. So it's a call to action to introduce companion plants in your garden. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast, Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. And next week, we're going to be talking to a great friend of Arthur's and mine, the wonderful florist, Anna Potter, from Swallows and Damsons in Sheffield. And we're going to talk to her about her fantastic book, The Flower Fix. So see you then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.